0: Everyone loves a good underdog story, right? What's an underdog story? Well, it's a story in which the inferior character, with all the odds stacked against him or her, rises up in the face of all of that opposition and adversity, and in the end, surprisingly comes out victorious, that's the underdog story. We, we celebrate this in really everywhere in our culture. Think of it in the, in the business world. We love stories of companies like Apple and Google because they were started in, you know, in this scrappy little garage, and now they're the, the biggest, most successful companies in the world. And they're also listening to us right now, side note. <laughs> right? uh, we, we celebrate the underdog s- stories in sports. There was one psychological study, I found this fascinating. Uh, in which a description of two fictional basketball teams were given. These are not real teams. And the teams were said to be playing each other in a seven-game series. 88% of the people voted for the team less likely to win. Fake teams. Then, when people were told that the favorite unexpectedly lost the first three games, putting them at risk of elimination around half of that 88% changed their allegiance to the other team, the new underdog, because we love to root for the underdog. We see this in movies as well, right? We, we want to see that Philadelphia boxer, Rocky, rise up and defeat the champion, Apollo Creed. We want Luke Skywalker, just a kid from Tatooine, right? We want to see him destroy the Death Star with that torpedo. We want Frodo and Sam, right, little hairy hobbits, to destroy the ring and defeat Sauron, we we want David to defeat Goliath and we even, because it's Christmas, we want the eight-year-old Kevin (laughs) McAllister to rise above the adversity and defeat Harry and Marv, the wet bandits, all by himself. And he does, by the way. That's actually, if you watch it, it's a lot more violent than you thought when you, were, when you watched it when you were a kid, right? Now, as we think of these underdog stories, there's a lot of themes that hold them together. There's justice, just the desire for what's right. But it seems that this one theme, this one characteristic is prominent in each one of those stories. And it's, it's prominent in our story as well. And that's the theme of perseverance, right? These stories give us hope. That's why we're drawn to them. Because we can relate to being the underdog. Now, not in any of the scenarios I just mentioned, right, not in any of the movies, but as we consider the struggles and sufferings of our lives, as we consider our own sin, if we're honest, we know what it's like to be the the spiritual underdog. If you're a Christian, you've had moments where you've wondered, am I ever going to have victory over this sin struggle? Because it seems like the odds are stacked against me. It seems like the enemy is is winning. Or you've been discouraged by present sufferings as you look at the world around you. Or broken relationships or doubts or dark nights of the soul. And you've thought, I'm not as sure as I once was that my faith will make it to the end. Or maybe you've seen others, people you love and care about who once claimed to love and follow Christ and it seemed as if they were all in on Jesus but they've walked away from the faith. And maybe you wonder with a broken heart as you consider their story what happened and will that will that happen to me? And so this morning we come to our fifth and final doctrine in our advent series Christmas and the Doctrines of Grace. And our theme verse, just to, to remind you, has been Matthew 121. Pastor Clint's mentioned it already. It's when this angel appears to Joseph and says, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. In these five doctrines that we've been exploring, they answer the question How does Jesus save his people from their sins? we've come to this final doctrine that we're exploring this morning and this doctrine is called the perseverance of the saints or it's been referred to uh, as well as the doctrine of eternal security and in short what this doctrine says is that by grace Christians spiritual underdogs will make it to the end not might Not we hope we can make it to the end, but by God's grace, we will make it to the end victoriously. But as we've done in in the last four doctrines, the last four weeks, as Pastor Clint has done, we need a little bit more of a robust definition to think through this. And so I've, I've found this wonderful definition from some old school saints back in London in the 1600s, and I've adapted it for us this morning. So if you were to say, more long form, what is the doctrine of perseverance of the saints? Here's a definition for us as we start off this morning. Those God has accepted in Christ can neither totally nor finally fall from God's grace. They will certainly persevere in grace by the power of the Holy Spirit to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts and callings of God cannot be revoked. I'm going to read that again. Those God has accepted in Christ can neither totally nor finally fall from God's grace. They will certainly persevere in grace by the power of the Spirit to the end and eventually, and be eternally saved because the gifts and callings of God cannot be revoked. Now notice two things about this definition right off the bat. It emphasizes both preservation and perseverance. Those two, two things are different. Those whom God saves, he will preserve... So that they will not fall away or lose their salvation. They will remain secure in the hand of God. But they will also not just be preserved. They will also persevere. That's the promise. Through the ups and downs of the Christian life. Though there there are many. God's people will grow in Christ's likeness and in holiness. In the face of sin. In the face of suffering. Until they meet Jesus face to face. And this takes place not by any power of our own, but by the power of God who never breaks his promise to his people. That's what perseverance of the saints is. And not only is this a, a biblical doctrine, as we'll see in a, in a moment, we'll, we'll do our normal thing of, you know, waterboarding you with scripture on this, but it's also the logical outworking of what we've seen thus far in the doctrines of Grace. We're we're totally depraved as sinners. Every part of us is stained with sin. We're not as bad as we could be, but every part of us is stained with sin. We're dead in our transgressions. And so how can we be saved unless God, who chose us before the foundation of the world, calls us by his grace, opens our eyes to our sin and our need of him, by the power of his spirit, that we may believe and applies the perfect sacrifice of Christ to his people. That's the last four weeks in a nutshell. And you can sum all of this up even shorter than that. You can sum up the doctrines of grace in three words. God saves sinners. He will save his people from their sins. And what the doctrine of perseverance shows us is that if God saves sinners like us, he will also sustain sinners like us and carry us into eternity. So think of it this way. The last four weeks we've focused on what happens for someone to become a Christian. Right? And we've started with before the foundations of the world. And we've seen how God tells us how God is going to save his people. The doctrine of perseverance of the saints... Answers the question, what happens now that you are a Christian? And the answer is by God's grace, we're preserved and we persevere in our faith to the end. The Apostle Paul puts it in probably one of the most succinct verses on this reality in the Bible. You heard Marie read it earlier in Philippians 1.6. He says, I am sure of this. When an apostle says that, that means pay attention. He's saying, I have no doubt in my mind. I would sooner doubt the sun setting this evening than I doubt what I'm about to say. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You hear what Paul is saying. Your salvation, Christian, is a work of God from start to finish. He starts it, he sustains it, and he will finish it. And we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at that verse as a framework for those three things. He starts it, he sustains it, and he will finish it. We'll see past perseverance, present perseverance, and future perseverance. That's our outline for us this morning. And we'll pull in a a slew of other passages To show us this. Now, let me just say from the outstart, we will focus on some specific applications at the end, but I think when we're talking about doctrines like this and we're hearing so much scripture, it's important to to know that this is very practical for each and one of us. This doctrine is meant to be a drink of cold, refreshing water for dry, weary, burnt out, barely hanging on Christians. It's meant to invigorate our souls this morning. You see, in most underdog stories, including the ones I mentioned earlier, except for Lord of the Rings, because you can't critique Lord of the Rings, right? In most underdog stories, the underdog finds strength and power from within to rise above the adversity, right? But this is so much better, this story. Of God preserving and persevering us. This is an invitation not to find the strength to persevere within ourselves. But to come to him for his persevering grace. It's an invitation to rest our weary head upon the promises of God's grace to sustain us till the end. It's meant to encourage us. Okay, so let's jump in. We're looking at past, present, and future perseverance. Number one, past perseverance. God starts it. What does Paul say? I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you. This is a refresher for us over what we've talked about for the last four weeks. If you say, well, that's good because I wasn't here for the last four weeks. Great. Let me just bring you up to speed. God starts salvation in us. Right? That's what we've seen in the last four weeks. We've been saying this over and over and over again, but it's worth repeating because it's of foundational importance. The good work that Paul talks about in this verse is this work of salvation for those who believe. It's when you became a Christian, if you know Jesus. You didn't begin it, God began it. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved, past tense, through faith, and that not of yourselves. You didn't do it. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So if you're a Christian, before you even start thinking about your perseverance here and now, you need to look back and think of how God persevered over your blindness, your sin, your rejection of him so that you may be saved. Right? That's, that was last week's, in Pastor Clint's entire sermon on irresistible grace. You say, well, well, you know what? I actually did resist grace. You did resist grace until God said you can't resist it anymore. Then he persevered over your resistance. And... Welcome to the family of God, right? And the reason this is so important for us is because if we look back to our moment of salvation and we think that we contributed to it in any way, we're in danger of two extremes, two things. Pride or despair. Pride will sneak in because as you look at your life before God, if you're doing pretty well and you say, man, I'm pretty good at this thing. Living righteously. I did the right thing when I chose to follow God. Friend, all you and I contributed to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Right? God began the good work in you. You and I simply received it with empty hands of faith. So that guards us from pride. But also, what about despair? Well, think of the other side of that. If you think that you somehow contributed to the beginning of the good work in you, when things aren't going so well, when you struggle with that besetting sin, or you're wrestling with doubt, you're more prone to think, am I even a Christian? Maybe I'm I'm losing my grip on God. But friend, God began the good work in you, not you. But when we see that God initiated, enacted, and began this work in us will humbly receive it, and will rest in this assurance of being a part of God's forever family. Here's the other word, the other doctrine that is so important to this idea of perseverance that the New Testament draws out, and that is adoption. Paul says this in Galatians 4, 3, and 5. He says in the same way, listen to past, present, and future in this. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What's Paul doing here? He's telling our, our spiritual adoption story. You and I were once bereft Without provision, abandoned, spiritually empty, aimless, and uncared for in our sin. But when the fullness of time had come, at the first advent of our Savior, Jesus stepped into the orphanage of our broken world, redeemed us, and brought us into the family. We were adopted. And guess what? No child has ever adopted themselves into a family. Adoption happens when loving parents look upon a bereft child and say, I want you. That's the good work that God began in us. And what's more, once a child is adopted, he or she cannot be unadopted. This is an unbreakable chain in Paul's mind of past, present, and future. When God began the work in us, we're brought into a family as sons. And that son's word is important. We'll see that in a minute. Which means you're heirs who will receive the eternal inheritance of life with God. Verse 6 of Galatians 4. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but if a son, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. There it is right there. Past, present, future. You were a slave. You're not anymore. Now you're a son. And the reason son is important, not just sons and daughters. It refers to all of us who are in Christ, sons and daughters. But son means heir. A recipient of all that the Father has, an heir through God. Future. You've been adopted, past, you are God's children, present, therefore you will receive an inheritance. Future. Now, how did God do this? He did it through the blood of Jesus and the seal of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 9:12, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ purchased our salvation once for all, unlike those Old Testament sacrificial system, which required continual sacrifice for sins. But now, because of Jesus, the bill says paid in full for those who trust in Christ. And you can't run up the charges again because the payment Though it took place in the past, applies to all of the sins of God's people, past, present, and future. And is secured for eternity. It's a secure payment. So he accomplished it by the death of his son, but he also seals it with his spirit. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, that's the beginning, you were sealed With the promised Holy Spirit who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire a possession of it to the praise of his glory. So this image of a seal is meant to give this idea of security and ownership. And Paul is saying that happened the moment you believe because I put my spirit in you. And when I did that I said you're mine forever. Then Paul uses another financial term. He says in our translation, the ESV, guarantee, but the idea here is of a down payment. Commentator Ben Merkel says, God has given his people the Holy Spirit with the expectation and assurance that a full inheritance will follow. But friends, before we start talking about our, preserva- our, our perseverance here and now and in the future, we have to be constantly looking back to what God did for us on the cross. Because he tells us, when that happened, I sealed you. I secured your redemption. That's the Bible's logic. If I adopted you, if I accomplished that salvation through Christ and I sealed you with my spirit, then... If all that happened in the past, then you can know that I will sustain you here in the present. And that leads us to number two. Number one, past perseverance. Number two, present perseverance. Philippians six goes on to say that God will do this. God will bring it. Now there's this, this view of God, this faulty view of God. Uh, you, you may have heard of it before. It's called deism. And a common illustration for deism is that uh, the God of Deism is like this divine clockmaker. So he 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 builds the clock, he's really involved at building the clock, but then he sort of winds it up and lets it go, and then he steps away. So in, in other words, the God of Deism created everything, he started it, but he's not actively involved in the everyday details. And though I'm I'm guessing we don't none of us walk around calling ourselves deists, I think the reality is. We're tempted to treat our spiritual lives that way, aren't we? As if God saves us, he adopts us, he begins the good work. And then he says, all right, you're on your own. Here you go. Don't mess it up. I'm coming back. So don't screw it up before then. The problem with that is that everywhere we turn in the scriptures, we see a God who is presently and intimately involved in the lives of his people. Friends, I believe believe this is the hardest part of this doctrine for us today. I think most Christians say, once we're saved, God keeps us till the end. Yeah, that's great. Check. Why do we need a whole sermon on this? I think this is why. Dr. Tim Lane calls this the gospel gap. What's the gospel gap? Well, most most Christians can look back on the work of God in the beginning of their salvation. If I ask you your testimony and you, you follow Jesus, you'll be able to say, yes, he died on the cross for my sins. And he saved me, right? That's past. And I think most Christians are able to say, yes, future, Jesus is coming back. I'm looking forward to that day. But many of us struggle to know how the persevering grace of Christ relates to our everyday here and now. There's a gap in our gospel. We live as if Jesus saved us, stepped away, and leaves us to our own devices until he returns. As if we're left to figure out the doubts on our own. As if we're left to figure out the the marital struggles, the money struggles, all of those things on our own. We say, yeah, absolutely, God is intimately involved in our salvation. And we know Christ is coming back. But what about the here and now? So what I want us to do as we go through this slew of scriptures is listen to what God has to say about the present tense of his presence In his people's lives. What these verses do is they fill that gap for us. We see that God promises our perseverance and preservation first in the trials of life. Listen to Isaiah 43: It says, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, past. I have called you by name, past. You are mine, present. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Isaiah 54.10. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has hear that? Not had, has compassion on you. This poetic Old Testament prophetic language of mountains and rivers and storms and fires, all of it is meant to illustrate the struggles of our life. And God says here in the midst of every single trial, I will not let you go. In fact, according to Isaiah fifty-four you'll sooner see Mount Washington turned on its head before my loving grip on you lessens. We see God's promise to preserve us in the here and now, not just in our trials, but also in our very own sin. Our own sin can't separate us from his love. Now it's important to note that what we're not saying here is that sin is no big deal for the Christian. It is a big deal. It's serious and we must wage war against it. But even... The most grievous of our own sins, if we are in Christ, cannot separate us from the love of God. We can, R.C. Sproul writes, Christians can have radical and serious falls from grace, but never total and final falls from grace. There's a difference. Think of King David's adultery. Think of Peter's denial of Christ. Or think of examples from your own life. One of the greatest Christians who ever lived... The Apostle Paul writes of his own personal struggle with sin in Romans 7. And he writes in such a way, it's so encouraging, Romans 7, because it's common to each one of us. He says, listen, there's times when I know I go against God's will and sin. I do what I know I shouldn't do, and what I want to do, the thing I desire, I can't do it. I don't have the ability to carry it out. Can you relate to that? Of course you can. And friend, what do you do in those moments where you feel like your sin is overwhelming you? Are you tempted to think, ah, I must not be a real Christian? Or do you, are you tempted to pull away from God thinking maybe he's pulled away from you? Friend, Paul does neither of those. Listen to his response in Romans seven twenty four: Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see what we learn from Paul here? When our sin tempts us to pull away from God and think that his grip is letting go of us, we learn what proper self-talk looks like. This is good counseling here. When we feel like we're losing our grip on God. Notice what he does. He acknowledges the seriousness of his sin. When was the last time you started a prayer and said, God, wretched man that I am. He's not playing games with his sin, but he doesn't wallow in self-pity. What does he do? He points his soul to Christ's work on his behalf. And he brings that work into the present. Do you see he's closing the gospel gap? He's saying, I'm not condemned. Jesus was condemned in my place that I may never be. Instead, I'm the opposite of condemned. I'm approved of, I'm affirmed, I'm secure, I'm kept in Jesus Christ. I will persevere through this. God also promises our perseverance and preservation in the face of persecution. Later on in that same chapter, in Romans 8, verse 36, Paul writes, As as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. Or being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's talking about intense opposition and violence against the church because of preaching the gospel. But he says, verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, same language as Philippians 1.6, I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and then just in case he he Didn't want to miss anything. He says, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That seals it right there, doesn't it? Nothing. Not even opposition against the church. Not even the sufferings of life. Not even your own sin can separate you from him. I think it's important here to pause and answer a common question, a common objection to this. What about those who have walked away from the faith? It's an important question. It's a good question to ask and think through. At one time, they seemed to bear all the fruit of being a genuine Christian. Maybe someone you know or maybe someone more high profile. I have a book on my shelf that has these beautiful truths we've been talking about for the last five weeks in it. Wonderful, biblical, God-centered truth. And that author no longer claims Christ. So what do we do with this? Well, biblically, we see that while salvation is secure, there are those who appear to have experienced the saving grace of God, but never actually did. And so eventually they walk away. And we really, this is really another sermon, right? But I'd point you to Jesus' illustration in Mark 4, where he says the the, the word of God is like a seed, And it goes out and it doesn't always fall on the rich soil of believing hearts. Sometimes it falls on rocky soil or thorny soil and it appears to sprout up. But because there's no deep roots, either opposition to Christianity or the cares of this world choke it out and they turn away fully. But the most concise explanation of this in the Bible, I think, comes from the Apostle John in 1 John 2.19. Listen to what he says. He's talking about these people who have walked away from the faith. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. And here's his logic. For if they had been of us, they would, not, they would have continued with us. Perseverance. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So the person who has walked away. Either they were never really saved in the first place, or, and this is so important for us, or they're in a period of radical and serious fall from grace. But one day, they'll return to the Father. And our, our response when this happens should be humble and prayerful. Every story is different. There, there are a number of reasons people step away from the faith but our first response shouldn't be to determine why or examine their church background or pick apart their theology. That, for those who love them and are close to them, that may come. Depending on the situation. But first, we should pray for those people. We should have humble compassion and speak the truth in love where there's opportunity. And we should cling to this promise that Jesus tells us in John 10, 28. I give them Eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And, church, how encouraging it is to know that Christ's grip on us is much tighter than our grip on Him. He is at this moment, even friends, listen, even when it doesn't feel like it, He's sustaining us that we may persevere to the end. And that leads to number three. So, we've seen past perseverance. Present perseverance and future perseverance. The God who started the work of salvation in us and preserves us and sustains us now, he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, 3-4, Paul says this. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's past and present. Here's future. When Christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory you will First Peter 1 three through five blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled unfading and kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being Guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jude 1: Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ." Romans 8:30: The unbreakable chain of salvation. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you hear what Paul does here in Romans 8.30? Let's put that one back up. Our glorification has not happened yet. But Paul is so sure of it, he says glorified in past tense. He says it's as good as done. You will be glorified. And then maybe my favorite verse In all the New Testament, I want this like tattooed on my my chest, maybe my arm. Um, Anyways, (laughs) Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Church, Jesus is returning for his people. That's a major theme in the scriptures. And we see, especially in the New Testament, it has huge applications. The early church was... Facing persecution, famine, political turmoil, false teaching, sickness, and their own sin. And nothing has changed in 2,000 years. They, like us, needed to be constantly reminded not only of past perseverance and present, but future. There is coming a day when all of those things will be done away with. The second advent of Jesus. The first advent, the Word made flesh came humbly as a baby in a lowly manger to begin the good work in us. He was crucified for our sins, raised on the third day. And now, as he ascended to heaven, is seated at the Father's side where he sustains and preserves us. For the second advent, he will come to judge, to right every wrong, and to gather his people to himself. We come to the end of the Bible, we get a glimpse of this beautiful picture in Revelation 21, 1-4. through 4. Then I saw, John says, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Victory is coming. Now, there are so many applications we can draw from this doctrine of perseverance. I just want to highlight three. First, the doctrine of perseverance means we can rest assured of God's unbreakable love for us. Christian, I know we've said it already, but nothing can separate us from his love. Do you believe that? That's a promise of God. That means the most important thing you and I could ever experience, the love of God in Christ, relationship with the creator of the universe who created us for him, cannot be taken from you. When you sin, go to Christ with this truth as your foundation. Don't run away from him. When you suffer, cry out to God knowing he is for you. When you're spiritually dry and feeling distant from him, pursue him. He has not forsaken or forgotten you because he has forsaken Christ on the cross for us. We can be assured Of his unbreakable love for us. And if you're here this morning and you've never known that love. Believe in him. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish. But have eternal life. And rest assured of God's unbreakable love for you. Second, doctrine of perseverance means we should pursue holy living with our eyes fixed on Jesus. This is another sort of uh, opposition to this doctrine. Some would say that this doctrine actually produces the opposite effect of pursuing holiness. The idea goes like this. Instead of living rightly for God, if you're telling me I can never lose my salvation, won't we just sin as much as we want and ignore God? And let me just say, it, that, that is a good question to ask. But if your motivation is great, I get a free ticket to sin, then what you're doing is you're making the persevering grace of God an excuse for your sin, and you're revealing that you love sin more than Christ, that you don't understand grace, and if that's you, please come talk to me afterwards, right? This is not an excuse to sin. Instead, we're to heed the words of Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Listen how the author of Hebrews puts it. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Do you hear that? Pursue holy living. Live for God. Grow in holiness. Love Jesus. Hate your sin. Then he says in verse 2, as we do that, we're to do it fixing our eyes on Jesus, who's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He's saying pursue holiness with all you got. Oh, and by the way, Jesus is the one who perfects all you got. Those things aren't in opposition to one another. Now how do we fix our eyes on Jesus as we seek to live holy lives? Through his revealed means, through the word and prayer, through accountability, through confession, through accountability in church relationships, a commitment to a local church. And here's the encouraging thing. Because God has promised our perseverance, when we do those things by faith, it's guaranteed that we'll grow in holiness. Third, and finally, rejoice in suffering. Right? Rest assured of God's love, pursue holiness, and rejoice in suffering. James says in James 1, 2-4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete Lacking nothing. You hear what James is saying? You can rejoice in your sufferings now because God is using them to shape you and grow you into what you will one day be. Perfect and complete when you persevere to the end. As Isaac Watts writes in his famous Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. He says, no more let sins and sorrows grow. Nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And what a glorious day that will be. When that day comes, you and I who are in Christ will stand before him and every trace of sin's curse will be finally done away with. No more struggles with sin, only full holiness. No more suffering, sickness, and broken relationships or anxiety or money problems or depression, only the fullness of joy. And do you know what you will not say? You will not say, God, look what I did to get here. No, instead, you'll say, the only reason I'm here is because you who began a good work in me has brought it to completion. And you'll you'll hear by the grace of God, Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in the joy of your master. God started it. God is sustaining it. And he will see us to the end. Let's pray together.